Chris alcoholic. Chris. All right. Feel pretty nervous. Pretty sure there's like a Slim Shady rap song in the way I feel right now. Um, I'd first like to thank Kenny for popping my uh, suit cherry. Um, it's been like almost four years now since I've been in the rooms that I was uh, told early on that I should uh, look like I'm somebody worth saving. And uh, and so, uh, it, you know, I also heard that it takes like five years, like five years to get your marbles and uh, ten years to start playing with them. So I think I'm right on cue. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just want to thank all the newcomers for stepping up. You know, like Ryan said, your guys are the most important people in this room. You know, if it wasn't for the newcomers, this, the whole thing that is AA in itself, um, for me and everybody who came before me and everybody who comes after me, it wouldn't work. You know, I needed people to be sick um, so I could get well. And it's like, it's magic. You know, I mean, if I would have been told early on, or maybe I was told, I just didn't believe it could happen for me. You know, and, uh, and I'm going to tell you some stuff about myself. Um, tell you my story, you know, and I, I go to, I want to thank Victoria, somebody super special in my life. I've sat across her. Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> uh, in the harbor, we sat across from each other, and we've just been charging this road together. And so she's probably one of the people who's heard most of my story because it comes in little bits and pieces. And, and I know that's how God works. He can only reveal so much, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I was raised by a Marine. And my mom was a Huntington Beach cheerleader. And uh, so my dad was from Texas, and he came out here as a Marine, and they met. And uh, they partied. <laughs> Lots of partying. And, and, uh, and uh, I wanted to be just like my dad, and I wanted to be just like my mom. And we got stationed in Philadelphia when I was probably about 12. And uh, their marriage started to come apart. Um, we had a pretty good uh, life, and then basically they got divorced. And... We came back out to California, um, shy of dad. And uh, I have an older brother and a younger sister. And me and my brother were hellions, you know, and uh, we just we just thrashed. Um, that's kind of what was going on at that time in Orange County. Um, most of my life prior to that, you know, I went to the Marine Barbershop. I got high regs, you know. They had asked me how I wanted my haircut, and I would say long and curly. Um, and I never had a choice on how that shit was going to go. So once I had a choice on what to do with my life, um, I wanted to try everything. And it kind of like the Catholic girl syndrome. <laughs> yeah. So I could have never foreseen what was about to happen in my life. Um, you know, my mom just couldn't wrap her head around the divorce. And uh, here she was, a, a single mom, and she works her ass off. And my mom is my hero. But, um, you know, and she's also not an alcoholic, and that's the crazy part. You know, that's what even at, at this time of my life I keep coming to terms with because I spent so much of my life judging um, myself against her because she made some really bad choices, like some terrible, terrible choices. And I'm not here to tell her story, but I will tell you this. Um, she ended up in prison, and uh, um, we have a really uh, big family. Um, they have money. Um, and we were always like, from that point on, we were always like the black sheep. Um, you know, we'd go to my family's other cousins that would always have these nice bikes and all this nice shit, and we didn't have any of that stuff. And uh, I don't know if I wanted it or not. I didn't really care. Um, 
But, uh, you know what, like when my mom went to prison and like my grandma took, tried to take us in. You know, my grandma, bless her heart, she, you know, my grandpa had already died and she just did the best she could. Uh, we are trying to raise three teenagers. Uh, my sister did really well in that environment and she stayed with my grandma. Um, she has a master's degree um, and she also has eight years of sobriety. She's a member of this uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, um, Let's talk about finding God on the road. Okay, so I wasn't going to listen to anybody tell me anything, and that's what happened. So I basically balked at my grandma and her authority, and she did the only thing she could do is she took me to my mother because that's what I wanted. And unfortunately, she took me to my mother. And uh, I found her. Um, it wasn't a good place. And I spent the next two years um, on the streets. And she went to prison, and I just... I just kind of did whatever I could. I remember crying for like two days straight, sitting on a corner, thinking somebody was going to come save me, and it never happened. And I remember right at that point, I got up, and I stopped crying, and I started walking down the sidewalks, and I would just do that whole step on the crack, break your mom's back thing, and I would just end up from city to city. And I met great people along the way, and uh, somehow I managed to eat, somehow I managed to live, and uh, it seemed like the endless summer to me. And truthfully, um, like if I would build a fire in a fire ring, and dig a little hole on the side of it, I was warm. And I didn't mind any of that. I never felt lonely. Um, the only thing that bugged me was I, I wondered where my mom was at. Like, she's going to be okay. I said I wasn't going to be. So, it was a long road, man. I was out there for a long time. Two years is a really long time. And I remember we were broken into my we were breaking into my aunt's uh, house one time, and I was just there to get food. And so I broke in, and one of the neighbors had called my my aunt. She was at work, and uh, um, my aunt said call the cops. And the lady was a Christian lady. She had a whole another plan. Um, she took us over to her house and she started making phone calls. And she called all around. And at that time, and I can't remember all the timelines, but at some way somehow my brother had ended up with me. And, uh, he, you know, he was like the star athlete and stuff. And I guess he messed up. And my grandma said, you could go out with your brother. And, um, you know, he's my older brother. And I looked up to him. But, you know, it turned out that he, he was baggage. He was always baggage to me. And I couldn't shake him. And uh, I, I remember trying to carry him. Um, when I was by myself, it was so much easier. And so that's how we ended up at my aunt's house. Now I'm like, I felt like I had two mouths to feed. And, and I didn't ask for that. And so well, we went to this place. And, and because he was like, a little older than me, um, they were gonna. They found a place called the House of Hope in Corona, and they were gonna let us stay there. But it was an 18 and up men's home, a sober living Christian. And so uh, we went there, and uh, you know that place was great. It gave me a warm place to stay. But like many treatment centers, people were getting loaded a lot. <laughs> and uh, that place called the House of Hope, I later would learn, is called the House of Dope. And uh, I got introduced to a lot of things while I was there. Um, and I learned a lot of things about safety. You know, uh, one of the times, uh, then I remember, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but my brother was getting kicked out of there because he's an asshole. And he never could follow directions. He couldn't just do anything. 
even though I couldn't follow directions in a way of somebody telling me what to do, when my ass was on the line and I needed to have a safe place to be, I could absolutely follow directions. I could jump through the hoops for a while until I could get myself situated, and then I would decide when I'm going to make my exit. And my brother could never do that, and so uh, once he was kicked out, um, they wouldn't let me stay there anymore because I was too young. And uh, it was very interesting because their other choice was me to be on the streets where I'm sure it was much safer. Um, so I had met a lot of the guys in that house of hope. Um, one of them, this guy Rick, he took me in because his wife Carla left him because she started using it again. Um, and that was perfectly fine with me, so I ended up staying in his house for a little while. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it got shitty. I learned how to sell drugs, learned how to carry a gun, learned how to do all these fucking great things. And I remember that, um, I, and at the same time, I was also going to high school. Because, you know, I knew that I, I, I had to finish high school somehow. So I had already forged all the paperwork. Um, every time they would tell me they needed a parent-teacher conference, I would say, oh, we're moving, and, you know, blah, 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 and I would move schools. So I, by the time I was in 10th or 11th grade, uh, I probably went to six high schools, you know. So I, I was just losing myself in, in all that. And uh, I remember one time I finally had enough of being on the streets, and then I called my grandma back again, same woman who kicked me out, and I asked her um, for help. And she said, no fucking way. And I was like, well, I don't think you heard me. I need help. And she goes, look, I can't do this. You know, I, I will sacrifice the one to save the many. And I, I just told her, Grandma, if you don't get me off these streets, I'm going to die. And she said, all right, but you can't act like a fucking teenager. School is out, out of the question for you. You're not going to go to high school. You're going to get a career. And so uh, that sounded perfectly reasonable. I told her I would keep my word, and I did. Um, she rolled me in Barber College. Um, I took a bus two hours a day there and two hours a day back. I did that for eight months. I graduated with flying colors. Like I said, I'm really good at jumping through hoops. And... Uh, one of the things that I was solidified in my brain was once I get that barber license, nobody can ever tell me what to do again. Um, I come from a long line of barbers, and I saw that they always had cash. Cash, cars, women, and cocaine. And uh, so, uh, again, I wanted to be just like them, and, and uh, so I got everything I ever asked for. But I have to pause there because what happened along the way, and, and I'm only realizing this now through the steps of alcohol economics. Um, finding God on the road to me was that at, at 14 years old when they kicked me out of that house of hope, um, the only way I could get food was this other place in Corona called DMR Outreach. And at that place, they would give you a box lunch out the back door. And there was this guy there, and he did much like we do in AA. It was attraction, not promotion. He never preached Jesus to me. He didn't try to beat me with the Bible. He didn't judge me. He just gave me a meal and talked to me. Gave me a meal and talked to me, and we did this thing for months until one day I before I knew it I was in a pool and I was getting baptized you know and uh, I felt something it was like wow this is amazing you know and uh, off I went again man and you know it just it didn't stick I know something happened I know it was profound and I knew I had found a God and that was as far as it went um, so it was shortly after that, and I believe that's where God started intervening in my life, but I was just too blind to see it. I believe right at that moment, God had started intervening in my life, but I just wouldn't hear him. And uh, so that was at 14, and I just wrote these little notes here because I have to kind of keep track of the timeline because, like I said, a lot of this stuff is still just coming out as I do the steps and I, and I pray and meditate. And uh so I got my barber license. I was 18. I just turned 18. I just got my license. And I would get to the hotel. 
work every day, and then I moved to a little one-bedroom apartment, and I bought a motorcycle. And then I bought, like, two TVs, and then I bought, like, two Nintendos, and I bought a poker table. And, like, it was rad, you know. We were just having fun. And uh, I realized real quickly that while I was having to go to work, while everybody else that was hanging around were in my house all day partying. And I didn't want to not party with them, so I would stay up all night. And then that's when I got back into doing methamphetamines. And so I would drink I would drink all night and then do methamphetamines and then go to work until that tore me down. And uh, I left that apartment, and I started doing a series of geographics. And I remember uh, I, I did a little geographic, and I met this girl, blonde hair, blue eyes. I met her. She was absolutely fucking crazy, and I loved her immediately. She didn't listen to anything I told her. I could never win an argument, you know, and it was like that from the very start. And I was in love. And uh, <laughs> one thing that I was very clear on, though, is I never wanted to be a dad. I never wanted to be a dad, um, and I never gave it much thought of the reason why. I just was pretty clear on that. And so, to my surprise, later her um, came in and uh, had this weird look on her face, and she told me that I was going to be a dad. And at that point, I was like 23 years old, and um, now instead of playing house, it was going to be a real house, and it was going to be a real human being, and it was going to be real responsibility. And much like my brother that news, even though I was supposed to be happy and I did outwardly project that, inwardly I was like crushed, more baggage. I was like, fuck, I don't really want this. Um, so I did what any, I've learned later, alcoholic would do is I hopped on a Greyhound bus and I went to a completely absurd place. Um, I went to Ames, Iowa. And I don't know anybody in Ames, Iowa. I don't know anybody. Um, that's where that bus was heading and I was on it. Um, I knew I'd fuck myself halfway through Lincoln, Nebraska. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, the bus stopped me off in, in Des Moines, Iowa, and it looked a lot industrial, shitty place, and I was like, I can't be here because it's flat like the concrete jungle I just left. And some guy told me, yeah, there's a college town up the road, and I got a ride, and I was coming up the college drive, and it was all these girls walking on the sidewalk with the light post, and it was like, I'm home. And uh, I, I stayed there uh, for six months. Um, and it was the second time God showed up in my life. When I left my son's future son's mom, um, I didn't have the courage to go and tell her I was leaving. I, I left like a coward in the night. And uh, But she had heard that I was leaving, and I had a trunk of all my belongings that I had packed, and she took every single pair of pants out of that trunk and said, you know, basically goodbye. And so when I got to Iowa... Um, I know how to work. I have no problem working, but all I had was a cut-off pair of sweats that I wore on the bus all the way there. And when I got there, I, could, I couldn't find any pants. I didn't have any money. I, I think I went out the first night with a guy I met, and I lost my ID and, and what little money I had. And uh, I met these two guys, and they let me live in their house. And I stayed there for a while. And again, uh, what I've realized now about AA happens even before... I realized I needed it, and God do it for me what I couldn't do for myself. I got into action. I cleaned the house for those two uh, guys I later would call Beavis and Butthead. And uh, I, I distinctly that day prayed for uh, specifically some pants. <laughs> and once I got into action, um, I went to take all the trash to the dumpster 
and there was a little flat with five pairs of pants, and they were all pressed iron, and they fit me perfectly. Yeah, and I was no doubt in my mind that that was like a miracle, right? And uh, there was a place that I had passed called Wallabies, a restaurant, a really nice restaurant, every day. And I knew I, did, I didn't look good enough to go in there and ask him for a job. And I remember I walked, I was almost walking past it again. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go in there. I ended up getting a job that day. And I ended up flying back home and trying to be a dad. So that's like the second um, God shot that I should have fucking gotten, but I didn't. You know, um, God was in my life. Um, when I got back home, home, you know, I got back home and uh, we had a kid and he was beautiful. It was just fucking gorgeous, man. I just, I really wanted to drink. I was thirsty. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, and I, I, uh, I think I did the best I could. Um, and then later it would be like we read in the book where I would build up a house of cards and I would tear it down. And I would build it up and I would tear it down through a countless series of sprees. And I remember also thinking that I was never going to be like my mother, that I would never end up in prison. And if I had a kid, I would never do that. And the funny thing is, the more we wish to be something that we don't want to be, we become that person. Much like me focusing on not drinking, all I could do was get thirsty and take a drink. Right? And when I start focusing on a solution in life, I get some kind of power that I don't have. So I blew through that child and that woman's life. Um, you know, she's still on my uh, eighth step. I haven't moved her to my ninth step yet because she has the power to kill me still. And it wouldn't be fair to my current wife um, yet. So the, 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 it hasn't presented itself. And if it does, I won't, I won't shy away from it. I'll, I'll, I'll walk through it like I have everything else. Uh, my son um, from that relationship is one of us. Um, he doesn't work. He's a lazy fuck. And I love him to death. Um, we probably have one of the best relationships that we've ever had in our lives because we have a, we have an open um, communication. I don't come from a place of judgment, but I'm also not his banker. I also just basically let him learn the lessons in life that he has, and that's the hardest thing I've ever had to do as a dad is to not fix it. You know, and that's hard. Um, isolation was uh, where all that took me. You know, I, I, I couldn't be free, and i got to be honest with you, even to this day, I miss the, the endless summer. I miss it, you know? Kind of like when I had to quit drinking, I missed alcohol. I missed drinking. With every ounce of my being, I, I, I just missed it because it worked fucking perfectly for me. You know, the, the part in the book where it says, blotting out the consciousness of my intolerable existence came later, came much later. Um, I was having a lot of fun. Um, I worked really hard. I always work hard. I'm, I'm just as addicted to work as I am to drugs and alcohol. Um, and that can be a character defect, and it also can be an asset. And I just practice every single day to find out which one I'm going to do today. Today, what, you know, and and um, my perception was fucked up. You know, that was the thing I've learned too. Is my, it was my perception on how life was, and it kept putting me in in. in uh, constant fear. I just didn't know what that looked like. And um, I was unwilling to surrender. You know, and so somebody would challenge me and I would challenge myself. And, and, um, and, I, and I was really good at that. I was really good at it. I mean, so many times I, you know, like, 
I, I can't even tell, like, so many, like, I would do some completely absurd, absurd shit, and I would convince the cop that it was my ex's fault, and then they would be looking at her, and she's like, what the hell did I do? Like, I just had this gift to, like, turn shit around to make everybody else the, the problem, and I look like the innocent victim, and I'm really good at that, um, and that's a character defect that um, almost killed me. You know, I don't really, uh, haven't really known how to tell people how I feel. Um, I'm really good at hiding what's going on inside me, um, as most of us are. You know, we get in here broken, we get in here alone. Um, I haven't had a relationship with my dad who's a Marine. Um, and I'll just give you a little backstory on that. So I was actually put in a foster home by my first dad because he didn't want my mom to have me. And this guy who was this Marine who I called dad saved us. So imagine my surprise when another man abandoned me. Um, and I'm currently trying to work on that relationship, you know. And now the dad who uh, never was a part of my life wants to have a relationship, you know. And I'm praying, meditating, am I just shutting that off or is it something that I want to go forward with? Um, why am I telling you all this stuff? What does that have to do with alcohol? And uh, it's getting down to the root of the problem, you know. Um, Self-reliance. I just put that on my little bullet list here. Um, Self-reliance had failed me. Um, in the end, but it took a long time. I couldn't surrender, um, and and even in AA when I when I came here, I started coming to AA. Um, really, in 2000, I got arrested, um, and they told me if I was if I said I was an alcoholic, that they would let me get into this new prog program called drug court. And since I was looking at four years in prison, it seemed like a fair deal. I said I'm an alcoholic. They let me out. I did the three-year program. Um, I graduated felonies on the stage with uh, Sheriff Corona and Judge Carl Biggs. I was wearing a suit much nicer than this, and I looked really good on the outside, but I never did any work, and inside I was still dying. And the moment I didn't have to jump in through any hoops, I went back to what I was. I didn't realize that um, once I put alcohol whatsoever in my body that it was going to kick off this whole cycle again because I had three years without a drink, you know? I probably should be able to control this stuff, you know. I work for a living. I'm not an alcoholic, you know. And uh, so in, in AA, I came back again, and I heard it, and it said, science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. And I had fucking put my feet in the sand, and I made a resolution with myself. I am holding out for science. <laughs> And uh, that took me through another whole decade. You know, uh, we hear the word illness and disease. And, like, you know, um, I remember hearing the word disease, and I'll just share this is my own personal take on it. I remember hearing the word disease, and I'm like, I'm not diseased. Like, that, that just sounds so fucked up, right? But if I say I have an illness, right? I suffer from an illness. It's an illness. I have an illness, okay? I can, I can wrap my head around that. When I realized I could use the word disease with my wife to manipulate her, then I used the word disease a lot. I have a disease. Like, you know, I wanted her to feel sorry for me and all that shit. And I, and I really did. I wrapped myself around that. Um, for myself, personally, I have an illness and I have a spiritual disease. That's the other part that I didn't realize. I have a soul sickness. Um, I'm maladjusted to life, even to this day. It's why every single day I have to wake up. I have to turn my will and my life over to the care of God because if I don't, I'm all of a sudden maladjusted to life again and all of a sudden my perception starts going back to the way it was and then I want to isolate. And if I get isolated, I no longer am a part of you people 
right? Which I hated that too, but I'm happy to say I'm, I'm a you people. I have some of the most fabulous people in this room tonight that I absolutely love to death. Um, a lot of them are younger than me, and I look up to them um, in the most profound way, you know? Um, so, you know, I went to prison, finally. I got seven felonies in one day, a month after I was on that uh, stage in front of that judge. I took one drink, one drink of alcohol, and I don't even know how I got there. Next thing I know, three months later, I was being arrested again, and I got all the time that they promised me. And uh, I kept thinking, like, how did I get here again? And so I got out. I, I did a series of changes in my life, and everything went good. I finally left her because that was going to be a good idea because it was all her fault. And uh, I remember when I made that decision and I moved to my mom's house. And this is only 10 years ago when all this started happening. Now, I had never fully believed I was an alcoholic at this point, ever. And I met this woman. She's the most amazing woman. And, and she's my wife today, and she's still the most amazing woman. Like, we don't fight. Um, I absolutely love and respect her. Um, and, and our home life is healthy. When I married her, I knew that um, I had a chance to be happy. Uh, we went to Vegas. We got married at a little white wedding chapel. It was cool, man. We, you know, we did all this stuff, like a bunch of little kids, and then we got back to the house, and she was going to get to work, and I was still on the honeymoon. And it occurred to her that, um, yo, hello, um, are you ever going to quit drinking? And uh, the answer to that question was no. And um, I don't think she knew who she married. And so uh, one day I decided, you know what, man, I'm going to quit drinking for her. She deserves it. You know, she deserves to have a sober husband, and I'm going to show her what, what a great life I can give her. And I remember I tried to quit drinking that day, and I started shaking. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And I was surprised. I was shocked. I went through the whole tremors and sweats and all that stuff. And uh, I'll tell you this, too. She was so sweet. She just took care of me, and I was shaking, and she put the water in my mouth, and, oh, baby, you know, and, and uh, God bless her, man. And that did not happen after that. She was only sweet to me one time. Um, yeah. After that, she would pour water on me and turn the fan on when I was passed out, <laughs> hide my bottles or take them. I tried to explain to her, if you take this bottle, I have to walk two miles all the way down to the store and steal one. You know, do you want me to get arrested? You know, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, uh, at that time when I married her, I didn't tell her something else. Ten minutes, okay. I didn't tell her that I was running from the law. Yeah. So my now almost ten-year-old son was three months old, and they finally caught up to me. And, uh. She actually called the cops on me, and uh, when they came, I watched them, and I remember back again, and I, she wrote me for a long, or I wrote her every day. She wrote me a couple times to tell me that, you know, sorry, she uh, made a mistake. She probably doesn't want to be married to me, and I, and I understood that, but I spent that whole year writing how when I got out, everything was going to be different, and because I have 10 minutes, I'll wrap this up really fast, is I, I really believe that. And all my mind and all my heart and all my soul, I believed that that was going to happen when I got out. But when they gave me the gate money, when I hit that bus stop, and when I went to get that pack of cigarettes, I woke up drunk in a hotel in Chino, California. And my wife looked at me with that look she always had. Like, how could you do this to us? 
you know, and I came back here to Orange County at that point. I built up a life around us, and I did exactly what I did with my other relationship. I built it all up, and I ripped it down, and I built it up, and I ripped it down. Until finally, in January uh, 20th of 2016, I came home from work. We have this beautiful house, four-bedroom house in Mission Viejo. Everything should be looking fine. Everything's great, right, in my mind, in my perspective. My perspective was fucked up. Everything was fine. So when she was packing the van up and putting my kid in there and they were leaving, I didn't understand what was going on. And I processed that information. She drove off. Um, I wasn't to see my son except for twice in the next four months. Um, I felt really sad for about 20 minutes until I remembered I had a bottle in my golf bag. I went and got that bottle. As soon as that magic elixir hit me, all my worries were gone. Um, but she saved my life because it finally allowed me to drink the way I wanted to drink. And by drinking the way I want to drink, I finally hit a new bottom. I finally got into the depths of that soul sickness. I finally had realized that self-reliance had failed me, completely and utterly failed me. I thought if I had the house, everything would be fine. I thought if I had all these things, it would be fine. And it wasn't fine. And, you know, I watched this tree across the street in the fall. And, by the way, this is like coming up on my exact time when my wife left. And it was like this exact time. The tree was changing. It was red. And then it was naked like me and one thing that I knew is that tree was going to grow leaves back again but I did not believe that that would happen for me I didn't believe that I was going to ever grow back again I knew I was dead I was fucked I was in trouble and I went to my third time by the way I said my story back to Charlie Street third time and they weren't going to let me back in this time and they said what are you going to do different and I said I don't know I don't know can't tell you um, and so somehow they took me in there and uh, man I got out and I just started following simple directions. I stopped asking why. <laughs> I just followed, um, as I, I followed the men who came before me. I didn't like anything they told me to do. I haven't gotten my way one time in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, but I started to feel some ease and comfort. I started to sense the flow of the Spirit. Just like the book said, when I read it and I felt it, I was like, wow, that's working for me. And it gave me just enough to move on to the third step. And then when I did the third step, and I read it, because I have a very analytical brain, and I'll beat up every word in that thing. Every day, every day. Every day, Chris, every day. Right? And I've been doing this thing every day. And it allowed, the third step allowed me to get to the fourth step. Fourth step to the fifth step. And so forth and so on. And you know what? It says, rarely have we seen a person fail this third or thoroughly fall path. I don't necessarily know if I've ever relapsed. Because once I made a decision in that third step to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, I haven't had a desire to drink one time. And I think I'm super lucky because I hear people talk about the obsession returning and then they have to call all these people and stuff. It was removed from me with little or no effort on my part. It was just gone. I haven't slowed down. Um, you know, I stay with the basics so I don't have to go back to the basics. Um, I heard my first sponsor say in a meeting, you know, you got to, Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And uh, I took that with me, and I try to stay ready every single day. You know, I wake up, I hit my knees, I turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And I have this thing called a thought life. And my thought life, just like the book says, is placed on a much higher plane. And why is that? Because my thinking is cleared of wrong motives. Therefore, clearing my perception, all right, because I'm a selfish self-centered prick and that person still inside of me the person I was drank the person I was would drink again and one day at a time I'm trying to change 
person? I was. Chris, alcoholic. 